0: They just told us that um, the common areas in our building are going to be closed off, and so Ugh. we are now confined to a studio apartment.
1: Oh god! Well, you know, just hide the knives, I guess.
0: I know. We definitely We definitely have to get married if we make it through this intact. Like, yeah, yeah. I think we've that's passed, a, We've that's passed a, that's the
1: test. It's like proof of purchase, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Level unlocked. God.
1: We get married. I really, you know, this is one of those points (laughs) where you where you start to see. I just,
0: I just heard a voice from the other room. What, honey? We get married. (laughs) You have really good hearing. Hello and welcome to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's podcast on all things coronavirus. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy.
1: And I'm James Palmer, FP's senior editor.
0: So this is day three, I think, of podcasting from home, and we've made leaps and bounds. Um, James, you're pretty much almost set up now, and I think the bird chirping outside of your window has diminished significantly this time.
1: I quite like the birds, though. They felt sort of a little bit hopeful. There's one very fat one who keeps trying (laughs) to ineptly mate with the others, and as he sort of fell off for the 15th time, I (laughs) felt a certain sympathy.
0: Oh, bless him. Well, I found them quite quite soothing to have in the background of the podcast today. And speaking of soothing, actually, today on the podcast, we're going to talk about mental health. We wanted to pause a bit from exploring the coronavirus pandemic and all of its ramifications and just take a moment to recognize the fact that what's happening in the world right now and a lot of the things that we discuss on this podcast are really pretty scary. Um, and for millions of people around the world, our lives have been changed in ways big and small and that can take a toll and later on we're going to be joined by Dr. Marnie Chanoff, a psychiatrist with Harvard Medical School who talks us through some of the ways we can look out for our mental health as we all negotiate this really unprecedented moment in our world. But before we get to that James, you've been following this crisis from pretty much day one and certainly throughout the worst of the outbreak in China. What have you heard from people in China about the impact that this has had? On families and on people's mental health?
1: Well, it's been very rough. And as Mm. people have come out of lockdown, we've seen the divorce rate going up. We've seen a a lot of disturbing reports of domestic violence and other issues. Um, And while in China, there's some, well, there's considerable stigma around mental health. And so people Mm. aren't perhaps as open about it as they would be. In the West, it's pretty clear that there was a lot of anxiety, depression, fear, self-harm, all these kind of things have been reported in part in Chinese social media. Now, official narratives tended to blank that out a little bit in favor Mm -hmm. of the, you know, everybody's coming together and singing happy songs. But I think we have to remember that there's a, a lot of despair out there.
0: And people you've spoken to who'd been under lockdown, what advice did they have as to how to manage
1: Routine is a big part of it. Just setting Mm. a schedule for the day and sticking to it as much as possible. Also, finding a sense of community, even if that's remotely. So talking to people over video chat or participating in communal activities online, I think that's been really important for a lot of people. It's hard to imagine what this lockdown would have been like without the internet.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't think of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, if this had hit in sort of 1994, say what would we be doing for those two weeks? You know, probably self-improving activities and small home crafts. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been quite a revelation, I think, to a lot of people about how much we depend on that sense of social community and of being together, and how mm. important just the presence of others is to us. And one of the things that's really been not emphasized enough during lockdowns, I think, is that, you know, you can still go out for walks, you can still wave hello to people and smile at people just from a six foot distance
0: yeah i was actually really hearted so you know, i was saying earlier that the the communal areas in my apartment building have been now shut off um so i went on to we have like a kind of internal message board for our apartment building and it was really heartening it was just full of people saying look i'm in good health and if anybody in the building is older or you know, has underlying conditions, I'm happy to run out, get some groceries for you, pick up, you know, prescriptions or whatever. And, you know, this is a large DC building where, you know, people move in and out all the time. It's a lot of short term leases. And so it was even in a building where I don't really know anybody else, it was really nice to see that sense of community and coming together.
1: Yeah, Rebecca Sonic calls that phenomenon disaster utopianism. And it's something we see emerge in the aftermath of a lot of catastrophes. This sense Mm of suddenly realizing that the people around you are people too, that they need help. And, you know, if there's any silver lining to this, I I think that will be it. That sense of of solidarity, of uh, being together with others, even when forced apart, has been one of the things that to some degree has come out of the Chinese experience, even as there's also a lot of bitterness and anger.
0: So earlier I spoke to Dr. Marnie Chanoff, a psychiatrist with Harvard Medical School, about ways to manage the anxiety brought by the pandemic. So I want to start by using myself as an example. Um, You know, I'm working from home now, um, and like a lot of people that will be listening to our podcast, the news has just become this kind of car crash that I just can't look away from. And when I begin to think of how my loved ones might be impacted by this, how society and how the world might be impacted by this, it's really hard not to feel overwhelmed. I mean, what do we need to do to take care of our mental health right now in this very particular situation?
2: Well, I think you're absolutely right. These are highly unusual and very scary times, unprecedented times. There's no playbook here. And I think the first thing we need to do is just to acknowledge how scary things are right now. And that anxiety is perfectly normal. It's to be expected. We are all feeling it and it's okay.
0: A lot of people are now working from home and they've been knocked out of their usual routines. What advice are you giving people how to keep their mental health in balance whilst they're adjusting to this new reality of working from home?
2: So I recommend taking it step by step, day by day. Mm-hmm. You know, right now we are inundated with information, with updates, with numbers, with more and more Uh, information to process. And it's like you said, it's just very scary. And so our fear centers are firing like crazy right now. Mm -hmm. And those are very powerful centers in the brain and they supersede our ability to think rationally, calmly, strategically. And so we really have to work with basically our nervous system and we have to find ways to manage that fear center and settle it and calm it so that our more rational cognitive centers can really help us through this time. Mm -hmm. And that means cutting ourselves a lot of slack. And what
0: about parents who may have children that are kind of aware of what's going on, maybe catching on the news and are feeling anxious about it? How should people be talking to their children about this unprecedented situation?
2: I think the most important thing is to provide reassurance. And that doesn't mean we have to tell our children that it's all going to be okay without sharing our own concerns. But we have to let them know that we are together, we will get through this together, and we are staying informed as parents, we're trusting the experts and authorities. We will keep them safe. We will keep them secure. We will keep them informed as much as they feel like they need or want to be, and we're going to get through this. Um, You know, parents are under a lot of stress, and we may not be as patient with our children. We might find ourselves being irritable, frustrated, and that's okay. We shouldn't feel guilty. We shouldn't feel ashamed about our irritation or, you know, our lack of patience, um, because this can actually compound our risk for unhealthy coping mechanisms like substances. Um, we just have to be really gentle with ourselves and it's okay to apologize to our children. I'm sorry I raised my voice. I'm sorry I wasn't so patient with you earlier. You know, we're all figuring this out day by day and, you know, th- these are strange times and I'm really going to work on it. I think that will go a long way with our kids. You know, the situation is pretty dire, and I've been trying to prepare
0: myself and say, your loved ones might get this, I might get this, a lot of people are still gonna get this virus. How do we prepare ourselves for the potential reality that this probably will come into our world in a very immediate sense in the short to midterm future without totally terrifying ourselves?
2: Well, this is the challenge. And I think what's most important is to be able to make space to hold both the anxiety and the fear and the reality and balance that with a tremendous amount of hope mm-hmm. and, and belief in something. Whether that is faith, some sort of religious belief, or just simply believing in the human spirit and human resilience that we will get through this. And this is life. You know, I was just talking to a family member and he was telling me the story of another family member who was really facing uncertain times with her business. Mm -hmm. And she has a picture of her grandmother who was a single mom of four children during the Spanish flu. And she raised these kids alone in the ghetto. And there's a picture of her with her hands on her hips laughing. So she has this picture on her desk, and when she's feeling scared and uncertain and, you know, worried about her financial future and security, she looks at this picture, and that gives her strength. If you find something to believe in, someone to believe in, or just the human spirit and resilience, that's going to be so important.
0: Yeah. So I have a friend right now who has been tested for the coronavirus and is waiting for the results. She may, have, may or may not have come into contact with somebody who was later diagnosed to have it. And she's extremely anxious right now, um, to the point that it's making her chest feel tight. And then, of course, she doesn't know whether that's anxiety or whether that's a symptom of having the coronavirus. And in these really acute moments of panic you know, where you feel it physically in your stomach or in your chest, what can we do in that very moment to stop that thought spiral?
2: So a wonderful thing about our human body is that it's designed that we actually have a say in our emotional and stress response. And the best way to do this is to take deep breaths slow the breathing down be very very intentional about it and if you can follow an app that you have online if you can just pull up a YouTube video if you've never been to a meditation class or a yoga class and you can learn how to slow your breathing down and to just take very long deep breaths that's going to be very helpful If she can't take these deep breaths, then she can find her own way of trying to, what we call, elicit the relaxation response. That could be taking a warm bath. That can be taking a shower for some people. It can be listening to quiet, calming music. It could simply be calling a very reassuring, calm friend or family member. Um, And crisis planning can be very helpful especially beforehand. You don't want to wait till you feel like you're in the middle of your own individual crisis to start coming with up with a plan. You know, it can be very helpful to think through the what ifs beforehand when you're actually in a calm, controlled place. You know, what if I get this virus? What if my family member gets it? What if my best friend gets it? Who can I call for support? Where will I go? Who can I trust to help me keep my affairs in order? And really thinking through those things in advance yeah. so that you don't have to make those decisions later will be very helpful.
0: Is there anything else that you want to add that you think is, is really relevant right
2: now? I think a big one is to find a balance between being informed and being uh, obsessive. You know, with the 24-hour news cycle, it, it, it can be really hard to figure out when should I be tuning in and when should I be tuning out. Um, so I recommend coming up with a personal schedule. I will check for any updates three times a day. If it's four times a day, that's fine. It's, if it's five times a day, it's okay. Um, whatever you need to do to feel informed is okay, but sticking to those time boundaries and moving on yeah. And balancing it with other things, and I also recommend not checking you know an hour at least an hour before bed um, to allow yourself to digest what you just heard, process it, and then wind down so you can sleep. Sleep is probably one of the best medicines that we can be giving to ourselves right now is really focusing on on your sleep and of course nutrition and getting outside for exercise. These things are really, really going to be helpful.
0: That was Dr. Marnie Chanoff,
2: a psychiatrist with Harvard Medical School.
0: James, so have you developed any good tricks or ways to to decompress amidst all of this?
1: Well, it's only been a few days, so I can't say that I have anything brilliantly worked out yet. I mean, my stress relief has always been video games, because they allow you to just think about what you're doing in the game rather than having to think about real life, which is a great relief of tension. However, the exercise guy having just arrived to build our elliptical is a less good source of tension right now. It's uh, a... Just a second, Amy. We're going to have to give it a moment while the dogs (laughs) come. Babe, can you close the door? We need to finish the podcast. Um... Where were we? We're actually having an elliptical assembled right now, which I will never use. But <laughs> it's nice to have that in theory, to think that perhaps today is the day that I exercise.
0: I've been reading a lot more and a lot more fiction because TV is not cutting it for me because I'm still tempted to scroll through Twitter. But with a book, you you know, you know just really cannot get into it unless you have your full concentration and you can't hold a book and and your phone at the same time.
1: Yeah, I think taking, Um, I think particularly for journalists, taking news breaks is going to be very important, but for everybody, because there's that fear that like something might happen while you're not watching. But on the other hand, as long as you're at home, there's not going to be much else you can do anyway to change the kind of restrictions you're going to have to live under in the next few weeks.
0: Listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us how the pandemic is affecting you wherever you are in the world. Send in your questions to don't at farmpolicy.com, or send your questions as an audio recording using the Voice Record app. And don't forget to check out our coronavirus coverage over at farmpolicy.com, where we have some of the world's leading experts breaking down what's happening and what could come next. So that's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon.
1: And I'm James Palmer.
0: Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to cover your coughs and sneezes.
1: And don't touch your face.